everybody, and welcome to Common Narrative. I'm Crystal Haynes. You know, Common Narrative examines the media's effect on civic engagement, but more importantly, we dig deep and unpack the issues behind the headlines that you see every day. You know, Boston police say that they expect to make dozens of arrests this summer in an effort to address a rise in violent crimes and open drug use in the area of Massachusetts Avenue and Melnia Cass Boulevard or Mass and Cass also known as Methadone Mile. Parents with kids who go to school in the area and those who live and work near Mass and Cass have turned to activism after years of inaction by local and state lawmakers. And now a central issue, this is, for the Boston mayoral race. So joining us in conversation today are members of the South End Roxbury Partnership, because I know that you guys are out there on the streets pretty much every single day. So I'd love for you to first, each one of you talk to me about what brought you to this work? Was it a specific incident? Was it finding needles? Was it your kids? Like, talk to me a little bit about that. And I, I wanna start with Yahira Lopez, who, who you guys probably already know, very outspoken on this issue. So, hey guys, how are you? My name is Jahida Lopez. I'm one of the founding members of the South and Roxbury Community Partnership. And this uh, group had started because there was two communities that were divided by a line. And that for so long, both the South End and the Roxbury have been equally impacted on what's been happening on Method Mile, Mass and Cast. But it, based on a lot of the movements, it seems like the South End has always dominated this conversation, kind of leaving Roxbury with lack of representation on the issue. Um, and also understanding that Roxbury also has amazing rich history and has million dollar homes in Roxbury as well. Um, and so, you know, we, we combined several other groups that were doing the work prior to what we have going on. So, you know, there's Needles in a the Park, there's Orchard Gardens United, and there's people like Carlos Enriquez, Domingo de Rosa, and a lot of people who paved the way into why we're here, you know, today collaborating and bringing a larger collective of two communities, as well as having Don here, who has lived experiences, and, you know, most importantly, doing what we feel uh, the city and the state should be doing is doing a statewide approach on really bringing more people to the table to help Boston shoulder um, this humanitarian crisis because this is a humanitarian crisis. Um, I think we've moved past public health. Um, you know, it's sad to see people's loved ones down there. Um, those are people's children. Those are people's parents. Um, these are human beings who deserve equitable access to treatment and recovery services. And we, you know, as a group, I think that we can all agree on one thing is centralizing all services in one location is far from recovery mile. Um, and, you know, I would love to pass it down to Don because Don can kind of really who knows and has a lived experience can really tell us like what it is to be in that area and what it is to navigate addiction and, and you know, access to treatment. Absolutely, Dawn, you know, talk to us about your story. Okay, well, I'm Dawn. Um, I grew up in Boston um, for, you know, mostly all of my life. Um, and I have been an addict over 20 years. Um, I have almost two and a half years clean. And um, so I have been, you know, doing a lot of outreaches and stuff with, you know, Jahida and a lot of, you know, different outreaches down there, you know, a lot of different programs. And, um, you know, I ended up 
while using, um, I ended up, you know, buying drugs down on Mass Ave, you know, between the years of like 2015, 2016, um, you know, and I, uh, Wow, it's it hasn't changed down there. I can tell you that much. It really has not changed. Um, it's still disgusting. It's still you know people are treated like objects instead of human beings, um, and I think that's the worst part about it. You know, like during COVID, um, you know, cab had shut down and they had turned that detox uh, building into you know shelter beds, um, you know, basically for women down there, and. Um, you know, there's no treatment facilities, there's no detoxes, there's no nothing down there. And where are these people supposed to be going to get treatment? You know, they can't afford, you know, million dollar treatment facilities in Florida, California, Arizona, you know, stuff like that. Um, so where, where do they go? You know, why do the hospitals, when you go in there, treat them like crap? You know, they're, you know, once you're an addict, you're always judged as an addict. And this is the thing that I still get to this day. Um, you know, I could go to a hospital that they don't know me as long as the computer systems are, you know, um, you know, combined um, and our records are all combined. It's always going to say that I'm an addict. Um, and, you know, I hate, you know, I hate being judged by my past. Um, and a lot of people, you know, when they go into treatment, they, you know, they are judged. They are treated like they're nothing. And so, like, if we're judged and we are, you know, told that, like, we're never going to, like, you know, get past our disease or we're going to end up relapsing because that's part of recovery, which it isn't, you know, we are going to just leave because we're not feeling the compassion and empathy from, number one, uh, you know, ordinary citizens that are walking by us while we're using drugs. Number two, the people who are supposed to be taking care of us a treatment facility. And number three, by the state by the city, by anyone, um, you know, and it, it's, it's hard because, you know, we are, we are humans too, you know, and there is hope, you know, and, you know, so much, you know, better things, you know, after drug use that a lot of people aren't seeing because a lot of people aren't getting the opportunity to get treatment and to get help. And so, um, you know, I, I really have to, you know, give it up for my aunt and on Pam who had literally brought me down there. I would have never found anyone down there. Um, you know, my aunt does a, a outreach every month. She's uh, head of the Moms on the Mile. And um, she uh, she brought me down there. And, you know, for a while, you know, I made excuses. I didn't want to go down there. You know, I didn't want to like relive my old, you know, past and everything. And um, so I went down there and, you know, when I first got down there, you know, it was literally like I was, you know, it kind of like put me back to where I was down there, you know, as soon as I get out of my car, I see someone use it. Mm -hmm. um, and so um, I've been going down there ever since, um, you know, I kind of have branched off from everybody and I started an organization called Another Chance Inc. Um, and, you know, we obviously help, you know, all the homeless addicts down on Mass Ave, um, you know, men or women, but my sole focus right now is women down on Massing Cast who have been raped, who have been abused, who have been prostituted, who have, you know, just have no chance of anything. And so what I'm trying to do right now is I'm trying to, you know, um, get some resources and get some people collaborating with me to where, you know, our, these women can feel safe while they're down there. These women can have, you know, the things that they need while they're down there, even though they are homeless and they are doing the things that they're doing, at least while they're doing it, they can be safe. Mm. Where do you think the failing is on the mile, given that you were you were there? Like, is it drug use is is easy is easy to to um, to accomplish? Like, getting drugs is easy. You know, oh, yeah. people have sort of given up on on trying to police it. Like, what do you see as the biggest like failing here? 
Uh, right now, the biggest failing is, you know, ever since the Long Island Bridge closed, you know, people have had nowhere to go. And so, you know, mass, mass and cast have grown, you know, tremendously over the last four, five, six years. And what I see down there is, you know, I see drug dealers, you know, pretending, you know, dressing up like, you know, they live down there and just selling drugs out of a little fanny pack and stuff. You know, I see that, you know, I, I just, I see that the drugs are getting worse and worse. And, you know, there's a bad batch going around down there. And I witnessed, you know, a bunch of things when I was down there yesterday, six overdoses. And, um, and that was just while I was there, you know what I'm saying? And like, there is a bad batch going around. And and what we had heard is that, you know, the stuff's coming from New Hampshire. So like, you know, why can't we like, you know, at least try before they get to that area to stop them. And I, I know that, you know, being down there is difficult. And I know that, you know, there, I do know, you know, for a fact that, you know, um, they, they dress up like ordinary people, you know, so you you can't pick apart which one's which because there's always groups of people, you know what I'm saying? Obviously, you know, the big high rolling ones will come down there and, you know, their Beamer or their Mercedes and, you know, they'll just sit on a corner. But, you know, for the other ones, like you can't tell. So like, you know, it's like you can't kind of the same way, like you can't tell, you know, sometimes, you know, someone's an addict, you can't tell someone, some, you know, is a drug dealer, you know, it's kind of like they, they kind of mesh down there and you just, you can't pick apart, you know, who's who. So, you know, I would really like it for like, you know, it's just to stop before it gets there. You know what I'm saying? Absolutely. Um, Stephanie and Maria, I do want you guys to jump in here. Um, Stephanie, talk to me about the work that, what brought you to this work with the partnership. So I joined the partnership uh, South End Rockbury Community Partnership towards the end of last year, beginning of this year. And interestingly enough, I, I don't live in the area. I live in High Park. Um, I don't have family who, who um, suffer from substance use. Um, I, don't, I don't have a personal connection in that way. Um, so I think it, it's really interesting for me to get involved to show that this is a community issue for all of us, not just those who are personally affected um, by what's going on at Mass and Cass. Um, I will say that I work in Lynn, and so prior to the pandemic, I would drive past Lynn, or I'm sorry, past Mass and Cass every day to get to Lynn, and I would have to drop my son off at school, and this is something that he saw every single day. Um, and I was concerned about how this affects the youth, uh, being able to see open drug use and um, essentially becoming desensitized to some of the conditions out there, um, desensitized to open drug use and crime. And at one point, my son told me that he witnessed domestic violence and he was really disturbed by that because his school was close to Mass and Cass. And uh, being, a, um, being an education advocate, I take a lot of um, interest in this because I'm just curious as to how how we can come together as a community, both um, you know Boston Public Schools and Boston Teachers Union and other organizations that um, directly um, work with children and how they can come together to try to remedy some of the conditions and some of the issues that are going on at Mass and Cass. Absolutely, Maria. Talk to me about your experience. Um, I'm Marla Smith. I live in the area. I live within the, the one mile radius known as Mass and Cass or Methadone Mile. That Within that mile is where my house is. So to me, this is a very personal issue in the sense that I want to feel safe in my community. And 
my heart breaks for the people who are currently unhoused down on Atkinson Street, Topeka Street, Mass and Cass, who are living in tents on Bradston Street, who are living in tents in the park across the street from my house, because people deserve, simply by virtue of being human beings, deserve better treatment than that. They deserve a safe place to sleep. They deserve not to be moved along by the police every two hours to be moved from this corner to that corner. Um, the area around Mass and Cass is, um, it's four different police zones and they take turns, literally moving people from this corner, from C6 down to D4, over to B2, up the Mass Ave connector, which is state police, then the state police move them back to C6. And this goes on all day long. And I don't know how people get a moment's peace or a moment's rest to, you know, to, to sleep, to rest. Never mind all the other things that can happen to you while you're sleeping. You you can't even have you know two hours of undisturbed time to just rest and recover as a human being. So that part of the whole story, you know, breaks my heart. But then as a resident, I feel the other side of it too, because as people who live in this area. It can be really disturbing to see somebody in the throes of addiction and in the throes of, of you know, the middle of using what I understand is, you know, crystal meth or something where they don't know what they're doing. They're running up on you and, you know, they're, they're yelling or they're flailing or they're dancing or whatever's going on. And you're just trying to walk your kid to school or you're just trying to walk your dog. And you understand that this person has, you know, a sickness, an illness, and this is outside their control, but that doesn't make it any less frightening when it's just you and them on the sidewalk. And so the part of it that bothers me is that no one seems to consider what's going on for residents. There's plenty of harm reduction people in the area and I support what they do. I support their idea that we need to keep people alive to get them into treatment 100%. But the flip side of that is what kind of harm creation is happening for the people who live in this area by way of discarded needles, discarded you know gloves it, rubber straps all the things that kids can find in the park and then wonder what's that and you hope they just wonder you hope they don't pick it up and investigate what exactly that is and we're not talking you know one or two or a handful of needles we're talking of you know hundreds of needles every single day that are in the gutter on the sidewalk in the park under the trees in the playground because when you when the police shuffle people who have nowhere to go to somewhere else where they go is, you know, they go in the park, they go in the neighborhoods, they're sheltering under people's awnings or on people's porches. They're sheltering in the playground under the play structures because it's raining and there's nowhere else for them to go. And, you know, the part of me that that sympathizes completely is like, where would you go if, if you lived outside and the police tell you you have to move along from whatever corner or whatever street, where do you go when it's pouring like it was last weekend basically Friday afternoon through most of Sunday, and it rained continuously. Where do you go to try to get a little respite from that? If you don't have a house, you don't have you know a tent, which after 48 hours of rain isn't gonna do you much good anyway. You know, you seek shelter where you can find it. And unfortunately, where you can find it is under a slide or under a, you know, a jungle gym or whatever place structure is in the park. But then there's what you leave behind because you know you just you leave things because they're soaking wet they're sodden and those things get found by children and that that bothers me deeply because like i said clifford park is across the street from my house and it's used by the mason school for their recess and these school children are playing in a park that has two sharp spins in it mm -hmm. i don't know about you but i didn't have to do that as a child i never saw a sharp spin outside of a hospital setting until maybe five years ago 
and certainly not in a playground. And so my part in this is that I'm a resident and you know what is what has been allowed to go on by the city and by extension by the state is just not fair it's not fair to the people who are unhoused because they deserve better and it's not fair to the residents who live here and are just continuously being asked to be kind to be compassionate which is fine but why is this community consistently being asked to be kind and compassionate when other communities aren't even asked to care for the people from their community or do anything about that and this is where we need you know, everybody in the city, but also everybody in the Commonwealth to do their part. It's not fair that all these services are centralized here so that we have people coming from all over the city, from across the state. And we've talked to people who are from New Hampshire and Maine and Rhode Island and Connecticut and some beyond that, because they're coming here desperate for help and they should be able to get help closer to home, closer right. to their families and their other supports. So that's what I want to talk about. Yeah, we're definitely going to dig into that. Um, you know, this is a hot button issue in the the Boston mayoral election, and mm -hmm. so there have been a number of plans that have been introduced right so the Walsh administration created a 25 member mass and task uh, mass and cast task force. Um, the Campbell uh, campaign uh, Andrea Campbell uh, city council running for uh, mayor uh, part of her plan includes appointing a mass and cast chief creating a dedicated mass and cast first responder unit, decentralizing treatment and recovery services. Michelle Wu also talking about decentralizing uh, treatment services. And, um, you know, there was a, a Suffolk County um, House of Correction forum, which I thought, you know, first of its kind, right? So the folks who are incarcerated got to ask questions of these mayoral candidates. And one thing, though, outside of what was said in that by the candidates. One thing that really struck me in watching it was Sheriff Tompkins says, uh, you know, there wasn't a plan when they closed Long Island. And the way he found out was that was through the newspaper. And he had to call somebody up and say, you close this and don't you know how this is going to impact the area around, you know, the jail over there. And, and, and so I found that really interesting. And so I can imagine if someone like Sheriff Tompkins wasn't informed, the folks who live in that community, in the community there, clearly were probably caught off guard, just like he says he was. So to get back to my question, my question is, is you know, of these plans, which largely talk about appointing one person, making them in charge and decentralizing treatment uh, services, do you think that that's an effective way or effective plan to address what seems like years of very deep systematic issues on the on mass and cast methanol mile um i from my point of view i think the idea is a good one but i think we have to dig very deeply into how exactly that would be executed because decentralizing from here the question would be decentralizing to where what we don't want to see is that another community you know be forced to take on something without any input from the community, because that's our biggest issue. No one ever asked us anything. They just did things. We don't have a seat at the task force. We don't have a voice, you know, re I mean, residents and people, other people impacted don't have any voice anywhere. No one consults us about what we would know would happen because we live here. And so the concern with decentralization is you decentralize what and you put it where, and do you just plop it in another community that's underrepresented or voiceless? And we want to be sure that decentralization includes, you know, the whole state, the whole city, 
and you know every community in it if you have a certain number of people you should have to have you know, some sort of at least base level services for those people so that they don't end up in a situation that's so desperate that they end up heading over here as a last resort into into what mm -hmm. marla's saying that we're we're as a collective and i think that don can also kind of elaborate more too is that we're a little confused how some of these roles kind of exist now anyway right so we do have uh, a person who is the chief of public health what is this person's role we have individuals who've sat in these positions long enough to create a plan to include the community, both on a political level and those who work for the city of Boston in a different capacity. So for us, I think the frustration is why now and not then? Long Island closed in 2014. We are in 2021. The question becomes, what did people expect to happen when there's been lack of communication, lack of organizing to address mass and cast on a on a statewide issue now all of a sudden everybody wants to call each other out but where was this energy four or five years ago when the numbers of overdoses continue to increase dramatically the uh, we have an hiv outbreak on mass and cast and the reality is if we could keep it all the way real hiv never left mass and cast the number continues to increase every year right and then in addition to that how many more services can you put in one centralized location making it a drug dealer's heaven because that's what it, really what it is is a drug dealer's heaven and as you can see there was a, a, a an arrest that just happened and then as don mentioned she was just down there on Sunday and another bad, bad batch is going around, which again discusses the point of you arrest a group of individuals, but the reality is there's another group of people who's going to come swoop right in and take over what this other group of individuals left behind because it's been an open air drug market for decades. And I also kind of want to make sure that we also remember the history and the war on drugs. A lot of people don't know that mass and cast is where the crack epidemic happened, right? It's had a long history of drugs. It's had a long history of gentrification, right? So they flooded the South End, which was a predominantly black and brown community, an immigrant community. They flooded that community with drugs. They moved out, you know, the the I what what they were calling the ghettos back in the days, right? To, to revamp that location, but they still left the same problem. That has never been addressed. So this issue is a 30 plus year old issue. And there's been politicians after politicians that continue to neglect addressing a humanitarian crisis and really defining what is the ending goal of helping people in recovery, because recovery is possible. I had a brother who was on mass and cast. I remember what it feels like being 12, 13, 15 years old, looking for your brother on mass and cast. And let me tell you this, working in this space again has triggered me in a way that I can't even like explain. 
because I remember those things looking for my brother on mass and cast. And what I witnessed, I would hope that no other child would witness something like that or have to be in the car at one, two o'clock in the morning, driving from Boston to other locations like Lawrence, like Lowell, like New Hampshire, Springfield, looking for your sibling because you haven't heard from your sibling for weeks mm. and months. Mm. Yeah. Donna, um, I, Donna, I do want you. Oh, Stephanie, I, I want to get you, but but I want to I, I want you to speak to this, Don, too, as well as someone who, you know, is recovering from being on Massacast. Um, so, you know, a lot of what Jahida said is, you know, the absolute truth. You, you know, you, you stop the people that are down there right now selling, but then a whole new group comes in. And, you know, I. I somehow wonder, you know, to myself all the time is how do they have so much, you know what I'm saying? Like, it, it's just, it, it mind boggles me because like when people are arrested, they're not arrested with, you know, all the drugs that can, you know, you know, they can sell to Mass Ave and just like, you know, a whole week to just, you know, cure everybody's habit at that time. Like, I, I want to know like where, why aren't they picking up what, you know, it's big. I don't say it's selling drugs anymore. It's selling death because that is literally what is happening down there. And, you know, I, um, after like, I, I under, I get where everybody's coming from. And like, you know, I, I see both sides of it now, you know, I see, I, I, I see the addict perspective, you know, and that's me, but I also see the outside looking in and like these families that are just, you know, putting pictures of missing people up, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis that they haven't heard from their child, that they haven't heard from their sister or their son or their daughter or their brother, you know, and it, it it's, at the time when I was using, I, you know, when you're an addict and you're using, you don't, you don't get anything. You know what I'm saying? Your, your thinking is all, you know, completely gone. You don't care about your family. You don't care about yourself. You don't care about your kids. You don't care about a job. You don't care about a place to live. You care about getting high. You used to live and live to use. That's exactly what you do. And so when you're down there and you're an addict, you know, you don't know your family's looking for you because you haven't, you don't have a phone. You sold it for a bag. You know, you don't know that, you know, people are looking for you because you're hiding in a tent or, you know, down uh, an alley because you have three warrants out for, you know, shoplifting, you know, um, and like a lot of it is, is that, you know, I just, I see it, I see it from both perspectives and it hurts and it breaks my heart, you know, I, um, I didn't know when I was down there at the time, or even when I was using, not even just down there, you know, buying drugs and like using in the McDonald's parking lot, but like, you know, was using and I've been you know using off and on for 20 years you know I have seven kids two of my sons passed away you know I have literally lost three of my kids to adoption um my oldest is obviously home with me as you guys seen him walking through but um and then my one-year-old daughter who was born five days before COVID hit is finally able to come back to me and like I have gone through a lot to get to where I am today and you know I at the time when I was using, I didn't even care about my kids. I would use while they're in the other room. I would use in the bathroom. I would go here, I would go there. You know, my daughter has walked in on me, you know, using drugs in a bathroom, in a public bathroom. Um, and so like at the time, like it, it didn't bother me because I was just trying to get high. Now that I'm on the opposite side, you know, I, I don't even, I don't have words to express the pain that I have for it, you know? And so like, um, you know, what Marla was saying about, you know, people just trying to find shelter and trying to like get out of the ring. They don't have nowhere to go. 
you know, um, I know a lot of them, um, because they don't have the right type of treatment, they're not going to go into a shelter because they have paraphernalia. So they're going to stay on the street because they don't want to get rid of their pipe or their needles or anything, because when you go into the shelter, you have to get rid of your paraphernalia. And I tried to bring a girl there yesterday. I tried to bring her to Woods Mellon and she, uh, I drove her down in my car. You know, my friend pushed her carriage down. And by the time we got her there and she got out of the car, she took her carriage and left. And she said, I'm not going in there because I have too much paraphernalia. And you know, like when you're in the, the, the grips of active addiction, it, it doesn't matter that you're sleeping out on the street. It doesn't matter that you're sleeping in a vehicle underneath a slide, anything, you know, you're just going to be able to stay where you think you're, you know, not seen and not, you know, you can do what you want to do. And, and that's basically what's going on. You know, I have, um, I've gone down to like Atkinson street and stuff. And I, I see that a lot of them, you know, um, they just sit there and they, it, they don't move for hours upon hours, you know, and I'm not even talking about like the other side where, you know, the comfort station and everything is like on the opposite side, they just sit there and, you know, the cops are sitting there and there's not really much that they can do because honestly, when you arrest an addict, they're just going to go to jail. They're going to kick and they're going to get out instead of arresting someone who is in the grips of active addiction. Why can't there be drug court? Why can't you go into a, a detox, a treatment facility? Jail's not going to help them. They need mental health treatment they need a dual diagnosis and detox is not doing it stephanie please i wanted to point out uh, another thing about decentralization is that if folks take the time to go out and speak to some of the people on mask and cast they'll realize that the majority of them are not from boston um, the majority of them are from other uh, towns in massachusetts and some even from other states and if you take the time to really look at the funding, um, the state funding and where it goes to in terms of, you know, trying to get ahead of the opioid crisis and addiction, most of it is um, is delegated to Boston. And I think that it um, I can say that I'm happy that this is a top discussion for uh, the folks that are running for mayor in Boston. But I think that it should be broadened. I think that this should be a state issue and that other people, other mayors from other towns need to come to the table and start thinking about how we're going to really rectify the situation and combat you know, drug use because at the end of the day, these are their citizens as well, their residents that are coming into Boston and uh, they're doing it because it's accessible and it's easy. And, um, and I think that if we start talking about funding and we start talking about other towns, we should really start thinking about why uh, why does Boston have to shoulder the burden for all of this by itself? And maybe the um, the I, I would encourage uh, folks who are running for mayor to really think about that about possibly collaborating with state um, agencies and collaborating with other town mayors and uh, elected officials to see how we can really get in front of this crisis because it's not just a Boston. Um, issue. This is a state issue. This is a, a federal issue. This is something that's happening across the nation. But we can't just look at look at this as a Boston issue. Absolutely. I, I, you know, one of the quotes from this mayoral forum at the Suffolk County House of Corrections is really interesting because Acting Mayor Janie had said, you know, one of the things that she took umbrage with was the implication that nothing is being done by her administration, by even the state officials. When I see a patient in the emergency room, 
right? It's a failing of the system. It is time for greater investment by the city of Boston. Decentralization is, is in fact, something that I'm calling for, and it takes leadership. On average, four people a day are saved from the work that is happening on the ground. So this notion that nothing is happening, uh, unfortunately, is not, it's, it's not true. So I think that that's interesting because she was speaking to, you know, what you were saying, Stephanie, is that the other communities aren't saying, hey, let's spread out the services. We'll take, we'll take, you know, 10% or whatever. We're, we'll open up uh, a treatment facility or, 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 or this kind of thing. But do you think, and I think that, I think I know what the answer is, but do you think the city of Boston is at least moving it, moving toward a place where they're more actively addressing the issues on Mass and Cass? I think they have no choice this time. Hmm. I think that we have too many groups of people who are speaking up. Um, we're not sitting here on multiple civic associations, right? We are going to the ground and dealing with real people. We're bringing in the people with lived experiences. We're bringing other communities to come see what mass and cast looks like and how they can help us. Because the work that's being done through the South and Roxbury Community Partnership is through everyday people, people of all political affiliations, people who believe in safe injection sites, people who don't believe in safe injection sites. But we're coming together and saying, hey, collectively, this has to be a statewide conversation. And I, I don't think that, and I think that sometimes, you know, we, we do a lot of media, we do a lot of clips, and a lot of stuff gets removed. But we're not necessarily blaming one person, we're blaming everyone. Because this has not made this much airtime in gosh knows how long. So we as a collective have forced the hand of individuals and we are sticking to the script of, if you guys can't do anything, don't canvas in our community, don't knock on our doors. We're not giving you our votes. If you are unable to produce something that you should have produced as a politician or as a role in the city of Boston or any state-based agency to ask for our votes when you have done absolutely nothing publicly, not behind the scenes, publicly to address an issue that is over 30 years old. And we all know this. And, you know, and I know that Ms. Daney has taken a lot of hits. You know, we have all the issues going on with the Boston Police Department and all that stuff. Um, but at the same time, Ms. Daney was, has been a president of the city of Boston Council. Um, she, Anissa Sabi George, cheered the public safety committee, right? So for us, it, it's not that we have an issue with anyone per se, we're trying to figure out why is this such a big and hot conversation now and not while you were chairing these committees, not while you were the president, uh, uh, president of the city of council. You, like those are the things that we're trying to figure out is that why did it have to take for us to demonstrate, to shut down, the largest connector in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts to have someone say, you know what, this has to be a top three issue that we address in the city of Boston, because it's the summers in that location, it's, it's, it's sad. Like you see little kid, kids can't even play in a park. And then 
we're we're you know you have other communities where we believe the shattuck a portion of the shattuck is going to go into the jp the jp community activated really well when all that process happened and it didn't go the way that they wanted it to right but then kind of like going back to what stephanie discusses is decentralizing we know that historically when we start talking about decentralizing what happens is that take services put it in communities who have low voter turnout and those communities are often communities of color and immigrant communities so then what we're doing is that we're shifting the problem and keeping it in poor communities and then we then some way somehow a developer comes in swoop starts creating all these fancy housing kicks everybody out and then once a new demographics of people show come in the problem then shifts to another poor black and brown community and that's not what we want to do anymore we're saying decentralizing has to be a commonwealth of massachusetts issue not a less you know let's continue to go into communities that are under um under you know supported and are marginalized and are already oppressed and continue that narrative versus saying hey you know uh norwood we have about 20 of your residents here how can we kind of work together to see what you guys have going on in norwood hey new hampshire we have about 20 of your residents here how can we work together to remedy this situation or even if it has to turn into a situation where the city of boston has to start building these cities and towns and saying hey you guys owe us about a hundred thousand dollars over here and 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 enforcing the hands of people because i think that for so long we tried to deal with this conversation in a two in a very delicate way that is not addressing the issue at all because we don't want to say what's uncomfortable and what makes this group beautiful is that we're willing to have those uncomfortable conversations to really move things forward and address the issue and stop trying to like divide us oh you guys are nimbies oh you no we're like literally trying to unpack this together because that's the only way that we're really going to make the change that needs to happen on mass and cast but will always be known as method on mile marla is someone who you know you're living in amidst this i would love for you to jump in to talk to to speak to this these particular issues do you think these proposals will work in in your community in the community here I think they can work, but they have to come up with a plan. I mean, I know there's been multiple plans out there, but they have to have a real actionable day one plan. What are you going to do day one? What are you going to do month three, month six, one year, two years? What's your five year plan? Whether you get reelected or not, what's the long term plan for this? Because this this area didn't happen overnight. It's happened you know, over the course of decades, literally now. But particularly the last seven years have been incredibly difficult with the closure of Long Island and then the litigation associated with maybe reopen it, maybe rebuild a bridge. It's going to take, you know, if they're allowed to rebuild the bridge, it's going to take time to rebuild the bridge. Can we use ferries? What's the state of the buildings? All those things. I mean, if we could magically build a bridge tomorrow, it still wouldn't be enough because buildings need to be rehabbed. They've been unoccupied for seven years. And then you can't just, you know, throw people out there. We need to evaluate, you know, who is down here at Mass and Cast. Are people, and I don't mean this the way it sounds, but only homeless. We need to address people who are homeless because people who are homeless but not active users 
are being asked to exist in the same space with active users. For example, Mayor Janie put out a message today, and I'm not putting her in the hot seat. I think it's a fairly standard message from mayors over the years, but there's a heat warning. And if you are a homeless person and not a house person, you can come down to Atkinson Street to the engagement center. Well, you shouldn't be asking a person who is homeless to come to Atkinson Street to the middle of this basically open air drug market and wade through, you know, literally wade through the chaos that is down there. I mean, if a person is unhoused, they should have access, you know, citywide. And this is just one part of it. We're, we're going to have a couple of 90 degree days. Where are the unhoused children? Where are the unhoused, you know, single women? You want them all to come to Atkinson Street? That's a terrible idea. We don't have anywhere else that people can access. Then again, the engagement center has a you know a population limit. You're not allowed to have too many people inside at once for safety reasons, for capacity reasons, probably for fire reasons. So how do you then decide who can come inside where it's cool and who has to stay outside where it's hot when we don't even have you know a shelter on Atkinson Street? I mean, literally a physical shelter, not there's a building that's a shelter, but you have to get there by a certain time to get a bed. So I think you know there's some great ideas in all these plans, but I'm not sure how much actual actionable concrete things there are that can be done. And that's what we really need to move this conversation forward. We can't just keep having these theoretical ideas of what's a good idea for this and what's a good idea for that. If all we ever have is ideas, people are dying while we're talking about ideas. And so, you know, my, my position as a resident, sure, it, it can work, but it needs, to start, it needs to start working now. It needs to not, you know, work in five years or work in 10 years. It needs to be today, tomorrow, next month, the end of this year, what's going on because you know these are real live people and what people are being asked to do is ridiculous you're asking people who have gone through recovery who are on you know methadone protocol to walk down bradston street through the middle of people who are active users so now you've taken somebody who's working really hard on their recovery they need methadone as a component of that recovery and you're asking them to walk through you know th this gauntlet that no one should have to walk through um, you've got people who are coming out of jail, having served their time for whatever they were there for, and they have no exit strategy. They So the jail, the South Bay House of Correction, literally looks down on Atkinson Street. What kind of hope do you have as a person? You've, you know, whatever, not in contact with your family, you don't have, you know, access to friends, you burn bridges, whatever your reason is. You've got nowhere to go when you're released from prison, and you're looking at, well, that's my choice. Mm -hmm. I, I can live down there in the street. That's, you know, we need, we need actionable items in place to deal with people returning, you know, to society from wherever they've been removed, whether it was their choice or whether they were incarcerated, to help people re-engage. And it can't just be, we throw people away. And that's literally what we're doing. We're throwing people away, you know, writing them off. And that's, it's awful. Mm, absolutely. And to what Marla was saying, Crystal, you know, one of the things that I, we think about and I think about is imagine you being unhoused, navigating addiction, mental health, and other, other elements. You have nowhere to sleep. Mm -hmm. You're sleeping outside. You're, you may, don't, you don't have a nutrition, you know, a nutritional uh, meal, you know, plan, right? You're eating what you can eat based on your, your certain situation. So I always think about, and we throw this out there all the time when we meet, like just, and we're having conversations as constituents is how can we give medication as part of recovery 
in a location where people are sleeping outside, probably have no hours of sleep, are taking medication on an empty stomach, who are malnourished, who are going through other medical issues, and you're giving them, giving individuals strong medication to help them with their addiction. And again, these are all things like Marla said, is that no one wants to talk about it. No one wants to address and have a real conversation about all the other issues that go really go back to inhumane conditions. And this cannot be the way that you treat an opioid crisis without no plan, no like intent of really helping individuals to fully recovery and see a, a journey of, of, of understanding that it is possible. There's no hope on mass and cast. It's dark and dreary, even on a sunny day. You know, individuals, you know, recently there was a post in a group um, where someone was at a red light and it's getting to a point that even while you're at the red light in that location, if you don't have your doors locked, be ready for someone to open your door, steal the person you have on the front of your seat, or even pop your trunk while you're literally at the red light. Meanwhile, again, these individuals that are looking for their next fix, as Don talks about, people will do anything and everything to find their next fix, not to go inside the engagement center, not to go into the shelter, because we've created a place to really continue the narrative of pain and suffering for profits. Because big pharma, we haven't even addressed the issue with big pharma right. and the whole Purdue lawsuit that we have going on. Nobody even wants to touch that with a 10-foot pole, right? Because this, again, goes back to the hip hypocritical part of how we profited off of people's pain and suffering by, like Dawn says, giving them the pain and suffering versus really tackling the issue of housing, wraparound services supportive housing because as don mentioned you know addiction is a long-term process and it requires long-term services so where's the support of housing you know they say that a lot more people die of overdoses if they're home but when we're on mass and cast we kind of differ with that because you're out there giving out food and you just seeing people like dropping it's just i don't know is this whole situation is just it's sad well let me ask you about this because part of what we do here is how is examined the effects uh, that the media has on civic engagement, on really understanding what these topics are, right? It's the reason why we have this show because we take one issue and try to break it down for an entire hour instead of 90 seconds on a newscast. Talk to me about how you all think the reporting has been done on this issue and has it been effective? The reporting I think is the reason why we've been attacked and we're continuously called NIMBYs because when a lot of the reporting that goes out, individuals are making it seem like we're saying we don't want individuals in our community. And if, 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 if we think logically, um, you can't, a community cannot be successful if it doesn't address the issues that are happening in the community. We cannot have a, com a community that's comfortable for all green grass, open playgrounds, people walking in the street, riding their bikes, making sure that dogs are not swallowing um, needles. We can't do that if we don't prioritize 
the individuals that are our mass and cast who can join us on walks in the community, who can join us at the park and engage with us while we're having family activities or even have conversations. We can't have a comfortable community for all if we're not prioritizing those that are mass and cast. And I think that for us, we feel majority of a lot of the content has gone out again has made us look like we're saying we don't want people in our community and i think that is so far from the truth because as you can see this whole group here we have lived experiences we have family on we've had families on the mile we're business owners we're homeowners we have our children walking to and from the this area so we're tackling every issue and saying hey like this is beyond not in my backyard because sometimes it gets to a point that we want to ask those who are even have nonprofits that are founders that are executive directors in this in these locations are you putting this same type of energy in your community dealing with your politicians in your community and asking for a, a comfort station to be placed next to your child's public school or private school or next to your child's football and soccer game. So basically, the, the, the narrative have, has been very hypocritical. It's like, oh, you know, you guys are anti-poor, anti-homeless. You guys, you know, you know, you guys just don't want individuals here. No, we should all be mad because what's happening down there at the end of the day is inhumane and if mm -hmm. anybody pushes any agenda whether it's the harm reduction the destigmatizing we should all collectively be mad and saying we don't want no more rapes on mass and cast we don't want women prostituting for a fix we don't want to see people overdosing in public because if you know since we always talk about hipaa you know at the end of the day the city of boston and the commonwealth should be held accountable on their violations of HIPAA. You cannot treat people in one location where their whole life is exposed on the main on a main connector in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. The city of Boston and the Commonwealth should probably be sued for that because that's a violation of HIPAA. That's not treatment. You're not, you're not concealing people's information while they're navigating addiction. I mean, again, this is all going back to it's hypocrisy and we try to spin this conversation in a way where we want to shift the blame to everyone besides the issue at hand there has to be accountability this is the war on drugs it has never ended and something needs to happen before more people lose their loved ones continue uh uh uh, uh to die um and lose like don going through systems trying to get their children back and going through all that because you know we don't even talk about how it is to be down there and having once you recover you know you're still dealing with what if you have hiv what if you've caught any communicable disease down there so not only are you trying to recover from your addiction um journey now you're going to have to forever need um social and emotional support on all the other issues that we don't even want to talk about because we want to paint the picture of we just need to destigmatize this what are we destigmatizing right right marla jump jump in here because it seems like you want you want to add something to this you know the conversation around how how has the reporting by the media helped or or harmed the cause here 
I think most recently the reporting by the media has been helpful because it keeps you know the politicians various plans on people's radar and whatnot a lot of it also sort of creates a spectacle around mass and caste like look at those poor people isn't that terrible and the unspoken parties and aren't you glad you don't live there because all that is sort of centralized somewhere else you know this is all you know a yucky thing and aren't you glad you don't have to live with it and then everybody goes to bed and forgets about it. You know, they watch the news report, and they say, oh, that's terrible, those poor people. And that's where their, you know, emotional involvement ends. And I think to piggyback on what Jahira said is, it's not that we don't want people here. We want the people who are here to get the services they thought they were going to get by coming here. We want them to actually get those services, to get connected with recovery. Because right about now, what it seems to us from the outside looking in is that what they get connected with is drug dealers, very active drug dealers who roll into the neighborhood, you know, sell their slow suicide to people and then move on and they leave. And there was a drug bust in the news the other day. And I think one of the six people they arrested was from Boston. So these are people who are coming in from somewhere else, preying on people at the lowest, weakest point in their life. And it's great that the media covers that, but they need to, you know, look at, if this person's from Randolph and that person's from Foxborough and this person's from you know Norwood or wherever they were all from, I can't keep track of it all. Maybe focus on, on that area, that neighborhood. Like why are there drug dealers there and how active are they and what are they doing? Because this isn't just a Boston problem. And I think we're at the point where we really, we need to ask the state to declare this a public health crisis. You know, we or a public health disaster because you know governors of other states declare disasters when you know awful natural things happen. There's a hurricane, there's a giant snowstorm, there's whatever. That's a disaster. It impacted people, it ruined their lives. These people are homeless, these people have nothing, and everything they owned in the world has been taken away. How is that any different from what's going on on Atkinson Street? It's a public health disaster. These people have lost everything. And you know, literally, people come when we were out serving food or we're out serving snacks or offering clothes and shoes, they come up and they say, I've been robbed. The shoes were stolen off my feet. My, you know, someone is preying on people who are already the most vulnerable. They stole their shoes off their feet because they're that desperate. We were handing out food last Friday and someone had sneakers and someone else had cereal. And he said, I will trade you these shoes for that cereal. I mean, things that are being given to people who have virtually nothing that they're trading as commodities should worry everyone because you shouldn't be trading you have literally nothing and you're going to give up something to get something that you right now think is a little bit better you're, you'll give your shoes away to get some food or you'll give your food away to get some shoes because the shoes you have or if you're lucky enough to have them are in such a terrible state and i think that's where we we need we, we would like the media to be a partner in you know, tearing the lid off this Pandora's box once and for all, and just saying, you know, this can't be allowed to happen. We are a society. How are we allowing people to be, just be discarded like that? And if, you know, in the same way that the media helped drive the church sex scandal and finally ripped the lid off that to the point where it couldn't be slapped back on and ignored, that's what I would personally love the media to do, to say, look it, this is happening, this is real. Um, people have been sitting in public offices for years, and doing nothing but suddenly they're talking about it or worse they're not talking about it and you know that would be a, a wonderfully helpful thing for the media to do to you know work with us rather than you know just show a spotlight story where okay that was nice and then you know and here's a puppy or this is the weather or whatever but 
you know, that's that's what I'd like to see happen. Have the media work with us in partnership to, to show how terrible a situation this really is. Not to victimize the people who are on Atkinson Street through what people have called, you know, poverty tourism. We don't want to do that. We don't want to show necessarily people's faces if they're they haven't consented to that. But work with us to show the, how bad the situation actually is, because I don't think if you haven't come down here that you can really understand and appreciate how awful it is. So that, that'd be great. Yeah. Absolutely. And unfortunately, we've run out of time, so we have to leave the conversation there. I want to thank you all for joining uh, us here on Common Narrative, Yahira Lopez, Marla Smith. Sorry, I messed up your name at the top of the show. Marla Smith, uh, Stephanie Rodriguez, uh, Ruiz, and Dawn, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And thank you so much for the work that you were doing to improve this particular section of the, the community, because I think it's so important. You know, you all can join this movement with them. We have an advocacy toolkit that addresses uh, many issues on our website, commonnarrative.media. And you can follow all of our social media platforms on Facebook, YouTube, we're on Instagram, Twitter, all the places where you consume media. That is where we are on Common Narrative. I'm Crystal Haynes, and make sure you tune in next Sunday. And remember, knowledge is power and power is change. We'll see you next time.